Okay, so 2 Timothy chapter 2. Um, we're going to finish up this, this chapter today. And um, we started with the first 13 verses last week. And this week we'll pick up in verse 14. So um, the, the words will be up on the screen if you want to follow along with that, or they're up, they'll be in your Bible if you'd like to have your Bible open as well. Um, so let's just talk about a little context of what we've seen so far. Um, 1 Timothy, we've actually been in a series through 1st and 2nd Timothy here. So we started 1st Timothy months and months ago, and um, that letter was written to this guy named Timothy by the Apostle Paul to help the church in Ephesus primarily correct its course. Um, they had kind of, they had ex- actually extremely moved off the path from uh, Jesus, and so Timothy was sent there to correct um, what was going on and to help that church become faithful again. Now, 2 Timothy was written um, to, by the same guy, Paul, to the same person, but in a very different situation. Uh, it's about two or three years after 1 Timothy, roughly, and Paul is in his second prison imprisonment in Rome, his final imprisonment in Rome. Um, he is uh, basically locked away in, in a hole in the ground and knows that he is... Uh, not going to live much longer. He's got some trials to go through and some uh, some things to say to the to the people in charge, but he knows it's not going to work work out very well for him. He he gets that sense at least as we read the letter. We'll we'll see some of that. Um, but Second Timothy was written basically as a father to a son. Uh, Paul, an older man, writing to his younger son in the faith, Timothy, to help him figure out how to live the Christian life without Paul in it is basically the idea. Like, how do, we, how do we keep going with Jesus when the spiritual fathers and mothers in our lives uh, move, move on and, and go into the presence of the Lord? How do we keep carrying the baton into the next generation? And so that's really what 2 Timothy deals with. It deals with this, this importance of continuing on in the Christian faith and, and being the next, this generation passing it on to the, to the next one. Um, so what we saw last week was really Paul trying to give Timothy some of those practical instructions on how to do that. And he talked about how to live the Christian life, um, but the overarching theme of living the Christian life, according to the scripture, is we live it by the strength we're given in the grace of Jesus that we're not just to live the Christian life in our own uh, strength or efforts, but we need to depend on Christ moment by moment to live what he wants us to live. And so we saw that last week. That was mainly the focus of what we were talking about. And we saw the need to devote, devote our hearts to making disciples, uh, helping other people love Jesus. Uh, we, we saw the need to suffer well and to remember the Lord and the, just these basic things that the Christian life entails. Um, but all of that being strengthened by Jesus. So as we move into this next section, though, we actually are going to see a little bit more about what kind of training uh, somebody who is being kind of given the baton of church leadership ought to do and what they should be focused on. So this, this is really primarily em- emphasizing those in, in spiritual leadership 
But there are emphasis, there, there's, a, there's an application for everybody. All Christians, we're not all called to the same degree of leadership. We're not all called to be teachers of the Bible. Of course, we know that God gives different gifts to different people for the upbuilding of the church. Everyone's gifts matters, and every, but not everybody has the same gifts, and that's okay. I think while Paul's emphasis is primarily for those in leadership, it is not exclusively for those in church leadership. It's really for uh, a picture of mature Christianity, mature Christian life. And, and I think all of us need to take this to heart because this is just what a mature believer looks like and what their life appears to be. And, and so we're, we're going to look at all of this um, today. But all right. So let's look at verse 14. We'll get into it here with that kind of in front of us. Um, here's what he says in this section. He says, remind them of these things. So remind them. Who is he, who's he talking about there? He's telling Timothy to remind somebody, uh, some other people of the things that he's just said. Well, in the context, I think it's clear that he's talking about the, the people that Timothy, back in verse 2, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So we're seeing this, this ongoing, okay, you've learned from me. Now you pass it on to the, to the next trusted men and they'll do the same, right? Th- that's who Paul's saying Timothy needs to remind about these things, the people he's discipling towards godliness. So remind them of these things. And charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Okay, we'll stop there. So this is basically the first half of the passage we're, we're studying tonight, today. And... Um, Paul's giving Timothy some, some clear instructions to pass on to the next guys that he's discipling. And he's trying to give us a clear picture of what a, a mature Christian is about and what they do and how they live. And if you're going to just look at those, those verses that we just read, we can basically boil down what Paul is saying into one simple statement. Stay centered on Jesus. That's, that's what he's telling them to do. Stay centered on Jesus. Or another way to say it is keep the main thing the main thing. This, this is so vital for us as we walk with Jesus because we can get so distracted on, on all these shiny objects that distract us from Jesus and all these temporary problems that creep up into our lives that can derail or potentially derail us from what we need to be focused on. Paul is telling Timothy, listen, as you move forward with these other people that you're training to to be the next generation of 
church leaders and just mature Christians, you need to remind them to stay centered on Jesus and the gospel message that we are only saved by him. If, if we miss that, if we move off of that, we're, we're losing the whole point of the Christian life. He, we're told to stay centered on Jesus. And he gives us uh, several things here, four or three or four things within that, kind of as subcategories of what it means to stay centered on Jesus. So let's look at these. Verse 14. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, <clears throat> which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. So the first thing Paul says is to stay centered on Jesus means we don't quarrel about words. Now, what does that mean? Well, this is not the only place that Paul has said this. He's actually said this to Timothy in the first letter. He said it to Titus as well. And so if we just look at those, I think it, they kind of help to round this out a little bit. First Timothy uh, 6.4, just a page back from where we are or so, he says um, that he's speaking of the people that are, that are teaching false doctrine in the church. And he says that he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So in, that, in this issue, right, Paul's bringing this up again. He's already said this to Timothy, that we can't, we can't have people in the church, especially in the leadership of the church particularly, uh, who have an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. So quarrels about words can come out in just being obsessed with things that are controversial and, and trying to kind of you know, shake it up and be disruptive. To Titus, he says it a little differently, but similar. Titus 3, 9, and 10, he says, um, let's see, uh, I'm still in 2 Timothy there. Okay, there we go. It says this, um, but avoid... Foolish controversies, so there's controversies again, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. So the law could be interchanged for, the, for words. It's kind of the same concept. They are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. So, so basically, Paul is saying to Titus, same kind of similar issue, controversy, uh, secondary issues, things that are just not the primary point of the gospel. If people are making this, this kind of stuff the main thing, then they, they really don't have a place in church leadership in particular, but they really should also be watched because they could be stirring up division. And in Titus, in the case of Titus, Paul tells him, hey, give, it's a three, three strikes and you're out rule, right? If you stir up division once, okay, we can give you a little warning and say, don't do that. If you do it twice, we'll warn you again. If you do it a third time, you got to go, you know, and that's, that's, that's Bible. That's not me. That's, that's what Paul says to Titus. So three strikes, you're out on the division-causing issue. Um, 
And of course, we know that people can be crazy and sinful, and, and we all can have that capability. So, but let's recognize that what Paul is saying, mature Christianity looks like is keeping Jesus the center of it all. And, and to keep Jesus the center of it all, we have to avoid these meaningless fights, these quarrels about words, getting sucked into arguments that just are not fundamentally that important. Man, we, this is just our world right now, right? I mean, it just is. It's our world. We are so easily sucked into things that just at the end of the day are not the main thing. So we need to keep the main thing the main thing and stay centered on Jesus. So first we do that by avoiding the fights that are unnecessary. There are some fights that are necessary. We know that. Um, the central truths of the Bible need to be defended, of course, but, but those are pretty few and far between in comparison to the things that we do fight about in the church. Secondly, here's another way we keep the, the main thing the main thing. Look at verse uh, 15. Uh, and let's see. Yeah, we'll go with 15 for, for right now here. He says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So here we're seeing two, kind of two sides of this, two things in this one verse. But they both deal with the same root issue. Uh, to live a life that's centered on Jesus, we need to rightly handle our lives and we need to rightly handle God's word. So he says in verse 15, uh, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. So in other words, as we walk with Jesus, we should be walking in integrity in a way that honors him. We should do our best to do that, right? Because that's what he says, do your best. Doesn't mean you're always going to live up to it. Doesn't mean you're not a sinner. Doesn't mean you're not going to fail in that. Of course, we all will. But we should strive to do what we can do to be right with the Lord, to, to actually live a life that, that can stand before him in integrity. So how does that look and what does that mean? Well, it means very simply that we repent of our sin when we sin. We're repentant people. We're people who are not pretending we're not sinners. Like you could read a verse like that and go, okay, so now I got to put on a, an act and pretend like I have no problems that's not what it means. It means that you are living a life taking your sin to the cross of Christ every single day as those sins are, are made aware in your life. And we take our sin and our shame to Jesus because he took that sin and shame upon himself on the cross. And so to, to walk rightly in integrity is to walk in light of what Jesus has done for us, not in light of what we somehow have to do or feel like we've got to muster the strength to do. So we rightly handle our life, but we're also told to rightly handle the Bible. And this, of course, is primarily the responsibility of those who have been called to teach. Um, but I think it does apply to all Christians as we open our words, as we talk to people about it. We should all try to understand it rightly. Here's what he says. He says, rightly handling the word of truth. Rightly handling the word of truth is interesting uh, because it's, it's translated uh, differently in almost every translation that we have. Uh, it, there's not a lot of 
like the, we get to the same basic idea in all the translations, but each translation that we have in, in English kind of takes a different angle. Um, mine says rightly handling the word in the ESV. Uh, some say r- correctly teaching the word. Some say rightly or correctly instructing, right? But the, so the, the idea here is that every, every modern translator seems to think that what Paul's getting at is how do we rightly teach the Bible to people? And I think that's true. I think that's the meaning. But it, it gets a little complicated because the word Paul uses here is, uh, I don't remember the exact, how to pronounce the Greek word exactly, but it is, it's a word that is only used one time in the entire Bible, in the whole New Testament. It's not used anywhere else but this one verse. So, so we have to kind of understand what's the meaning of this word if we don't have a lot of examples of it elsewhere in the Bible. So the best that they can figure out is that this word means essentially to make a straight path. It's used in antiquity in other Greek writings from a similar time period to talk about basically cutting up a trail through the forest, but cutting a straight trail. And so that's why the King James translates this rightly dividing the word of truth. Um, so rightly dividing, it kind of gets to that idea of cutting a path or cut, cutting a, a roadway. Um, but this word is generally used in that, in that sense of cutting a path straight to where you're going. And, and so I think essentially, while our English translators try to make sense of this for us, and they think they do a, a good job, they're getting us to the, to the heart of Paul's use here. Um, I think what he's essentially saying is, is don't get off on tangents and don't get off the path, but just keep getting straight to Jesus. Take the Bible and get to Jesus. That's the point. Like to rightly handle the word of truth or to correctly teach the Bible, however it's translated there, is basically the, the point that Paul's trying to convey is we've got to cut a straight line to Christ. And we know that he's actually talking about that because in just a minute here in verse 18, he talks about these two guys, Hymenaeus and Philetus, who he says have swerved from the truth. So he's contrasting going straight to the word of truth, which is Jesus, versus swerving from the word of truth, which is what Philetus and Hymenaeus were doing. And we're going to get into what they were doing in a minute. But that's, that's the meaning of this, this word, and it's really interesting, actually. Um, but basically what Paul is saying is make a beeline for Jesus. That's what you got to do. Make a beeline to Jesus. Rightly handle the word. Rightly handle your life. Make Jesus the main thing. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 17, uh, 16 through, uh, let's see, 18. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. All right, so here you have this this kind of third category for, um, for being a mature, growing Christian. We avoid irreverent babble. We avoid nonsense. We stick to what is true 
and significant. We, we avoid, again, it's sort of piggybacking off of what he's already said. We avoid getting distracted by the insignificant stuff of the Christian life or, or the periphery of, of Christianity. We got to stay focused. And that's why Paul says we got to cut straight to the point to get to the word of truth. We do that by avoiding irreverent nonsense. And, and this nonsense, he actually says, is dangerous because it leads people into more and more ungodliness. He's, he says that when we, when we teach things that are not the main thing, inevitably people start to live as if those things are the main thing. And, and they get off the path. They swerve, just like Hymenaeus and Philetus did. And now these two guys, who he calls out by name, were teaching a false doctrine. They were teaching something that was uh, untrue. They were teaching that the resurrection has already happened. Now, he's not talking about the resurrection of Christ. We know that happened. What he's talking about is the second resurrection, our resurrection, at the return of Christ. As Jesus comes back, we know that our bodies will be raised to live with him forever. And he's, so basically, these two guys are telling people, oh, you missed the boat or something, right? Essentially, oh, sorry, it already happened. You guys must have done something wrong. Like, just really twisted and, and manipulative. And that's why Paul calls them out, because they deserve to be called out. Um, and they're upsetting the faith of, of some people who are buying into this and are freaking out because, oh no, I missed it. I missed the return of Christ somehow. And that's, that's obviously untrue. And um, yeah, so, so we got to stay away from the irreverent babble. And one more thing on this point before we get to the second half. It says, verse 19, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal the Lord knows those who are his and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. What, what Paul's saying here is this, that to keep the main thing, the main thing, we got to keep our eyes on Jesus and trust him. We need to trust him. See, some people's faith were being shaken and probably some people were walking away from the church. And we see that happening in our own day. We see it happening all, all the time. People get on Everybody does it on Instagram now. This is where you have where you have your deconversion experiences on Instagram, and it's stupid, really, really stupid. Um, like it just is. But these people have to get on there and be like, "Here's why I'm not a Christian. It's because Jesus is mean." And blah blah blah, blah right? And so you go through the whole thing, and but that can shake people. It really can. It can kind of rattle people. Go, oh my goodness, all these people who were famous Christians are now dropping out. What do we do? Paul says, "Listen, guys." Just trust Jesus. Like his firm foundation stands. And here's how we know it. The Lord knows those who are his. The Lord knows. These people, they might be walking away for now and they may come back 20 years from now. You don't know. You don't know where they're gonna, what God's going to do with them. You don't know. But he knows. We can trust him. We can trust that he's got a plan for all, even these people who walk away from the faith. Okay, so let's, let's recap that first half. Stay centered on Jesus. Keep the main thing the main thing. We've got to keep our eyes on Christ if we're going to be maturing, growing Christians. All right, second thing. The second marker of a maturing Christian, a growing believer, 
is being changed by Jesus, that we're being changed by him, that we're actually seeing our lives change because of him. Look at verse 20 uh, through 26. I'll read it and then we'll step back and talk about it. It says, Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So here in this in this last half of the chapter, we're seeing not just a, okay, we got to keep our eyes on Jesus, but, but also that we're, we're going to see Jesus change us as we grow in him. And we're seeing Jesus change us in three ways in this passage. So let's look at each. Verse 20 and 21, Paul talks about, he uses this analogy of a great house. Um, so big stately mansion in the English countryside, you know, Downton Abbey, Buckingham Palace, something like this, right? This big stately house. And he says that in a big house, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver. There are those, right? You got the fancy silver and the gold and all this fancy stuff because they're wealthy who live in that house. But also you have things like wood and clay. You have things that are common and just sort of normal. And some things are used for honorable use and some for dishonorable use. So the honorable use would be like, yeah, we're going to set out this table and have this beautiful banquet. These things are going to be oohed and awed at because they show how wealthy we are. This is what rich people do. And then you have the dishonorable use things are like, hey, you, you just got little pots and pans that, that cook the dinner and they're, they're simple, basic things. Okay, but here's what Paul's point is. Paul's point is, is that anybody can be cleansed from what is dishonorable and be set apart as holy and useful to the master of the house. So the point isn't that there are some people who are worth something and some people who aren't worth something. The point is, is that anybody can be useful to the Lord Jesus. And so what this teaches us is this, that Jesus changes our position before him. We all start out as dishonorable useless things. But what Jesus does is he changes our hearts and changes our position is he gives us a use, a purpose. He, he gives us a reason to serve him and work, work for him and in his kingdom. He changes our position from that of an enemy of his to a friend and a, a son or daughter. He changes everything about how we relate to him. And that's just, Paul's kind of using this analogy of a house and the things in a house to talk through that. So we see that Jesus changes our position. But, but look at verse 22. He also says, so, or 
So because you've been brought from dishonorable to honorable, he says, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So here we're seeing Jesus not only change our position, but also change our pursuits. He says, we, we were at one time, while we were in a dishonorable state, we were pursuing youthful passions. And now we flee from those. <coughs> and, we, and we pursue what is good and right and, and, and honorable to Jesus. Faith, righteousness, faith, love, and peace. We pursue the things that, that embody who Christ is. But as Jesus changes us, so do our pursuits, our, our desires. The things that we once wanted, we don't want anymore because they're inherently dishonoring to the Lord. Now we want to honor him by living righteous, faithful, loving, and peaceful lives. He makes us helpful, in other words. He changes our position to make us useful. He also changes our pursuits to make us helpful to others and to, and to the church. Right, that's what he says. He says we're to do this along with those who call on the name of the Lord from a pure heart. This is a community project. We're to do this together as a church, doing this as we change our pursuits. And then finally, we see Jesus changing something else. Verse 23 to 26, he says, he's kind of going to repeat himself again or get back to where he started this, but it's important to see why. He says, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponent with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So here's the third thing that Paul lays out that Jesus changes in us. He changes our demeanor towards others. He changes how we respond to, to other people, particularly people who are not kind to us. He makes us peaceful people. And listen, we're a work in progress in this. All of us are. But, but as Jesus works in our lives, we, our demeanor towards one another and to those who are actually hostile towards us should change as well to make us peaceful people. Look, look at this. It's, it's just an amazing passage. He says that we shouldn't have anything to do with controversies, right? We've already seen that in the first part of this passage. And the reason we don't have anything to do with these controversies is because they breed quarrels. They, they cause fights. They're unnecessary in bringing peace. But then he says that the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Everyone. That's, that's a different thing, right, than, than what we think of. We, we think, oh yeah, we'll be kind to those who are kind to us. Now we're, to, we're to be kind to everyone if we love the Lord. Able to teach, this is of course talking about, in the specific context, those who have been called to church leadership and in that role. Not everyone has to have the ability to teach, but um, 
but the leaders of the church have to. But I think here's the other thing that applies to all of us, patiently enduring evil. Patiently enduring evil. So that what that means is somebody's doing wrong to you and you patiently endure it. You don't fight back. You don't make them sorry for what they've done. You endure it. Why? Well, verse 25 tells us that we should correct our opponents, but with gentleness, so that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So, so what we're to do is show kindness and peace and gentleness towards those who are hostile to us or to the message of Christianity. And we do that so that God may perhaps grant them repentance. That God will actually use these methods to bring somebody around. Now, fundamentally, why would we do this? Because it goes so against our human nature to do it. But we would do this because it's what Jesus did for us. It's just us reflecting back what Christ has already done for you and me. The Bible says in Romans chapter 2 and Romans chapter 4, it says it twice in those two chapters, that the kindness of God leads us to repentance. Think about that. The kindness of God leads us to repentance. This is what Paul says. We are to reflect, right? That that we are to be kind to everyone so that God may grant them repentance. That's because Jesus has shown us kindness, which is what led us to our repentance. We see in Matthew eleven twenty eight, where Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Jesus says that you should come to me because I am gentle. Inherently, in, my, in his heart level, Jesus is gentle. And that gentleness leads us to who he is. Our gentleness towards our enemies may lead them to who Jesus is. We see in the scripture the patience of Jesus. Over and over again, Jesus displays his perfect patience. We actually are told in in. Peter's, one of Peter's letters that Jesus has not come back yet because of his patience to give people time to repent. That's a good thing. We need, we need time to change and, our, and our, the people who are hostile towards us need time to change. So our patience is what we need to display because Jesus displays his perfect patience. We do all these things not because we just inherently are good and and want to do them. We do them because it reflects who Jesus is and what he's done for us. That as we show the kindness and gentleness and patience of Christ to others, the Lord will use those things to draw them to him. And so I, I just want to hone in on this, that gospel doctrine does lead to gospel culture that what Jesus does for us should always lead us to live in light of those realities towards others. 
And in doing that, we actually will see a culture in our churches, in our church, in, in, if more and more Christians got on, the board, on board with this, we would see the, the whole thing, I think, the whole thing would be so much more compelling to those who are lost. Because what so many people see of Christians is the opposite of this stuff. We see so many Christians who are impatient, who are hostile even, who, who, who are the furthest thing from gentle or patient that, that you can see. And, and listen, it's not all on us. It's not like we don't need to heap guilt on ourselves when we fail to be these things. But we have to recognize that when we don't live in light of the kindness and gentleness and patience of Jesus, we're, we're possibly setting some people back a few pegs that Jesus will have to take another path to get them to where he wants them to be. It doesn't mean that we're going to handicap Jesus or tie his hands behind his back and make him unable to save them, but we're not doing ourselves or them any favors by, by being unkind and ungracious. So I think we can... We need to see the gospel permeate our lives in such a way that it comes out and actually informs how we live with one another. That's what I've been, I've been harping on that for years and you guys know that if you've been around a while. But I think that's just so crucial to what Paul is talking about here. That the kindness of God leads us to repentance and our kindness towards those who are unrepentant may actually be what God uses to help them repent. All right, let me pray for us. And we'll go. Jesus, thank you for your, your grace and kindness to us. So undeserved, so unearned. And yet we're just reminded again uh, that you are gentle and lowly in heart, that you are kind that draws us into repentance, that you are patient with us so that we actually have the time to, to change and, and come to you. So we pray, God, that whatever needs to be done in our hearts right now, that you would do that work for us and in us, that you would make our church a, a place that reflects these realities, that you would make each of us as individual Christians as we go out from this place into this world and interact with our coworkers or neighbors or friends or family, that, that our lives would display these realities to those who need to know you and be drawn into you. And we pray that you would do this work in us, and we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.